Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I'm glad that we have a chance to gather today and to look at God's Word together. And we're going to do so today by continuing a series we began last Sunday on the book of Romans chapters 9 through 11, a series that we've called Family Tree. And in this series, we're, we're seeing that our salvation is secure. And the reason why we know our salvation is secure is because it is the work of God and not us. And we come to know this by looking at the different branches of God's family tree. And by looking at how God deals with some within his family, we can know more about how he'll deal with us. And by looking at how God was faithful to his promises to Israel will help us know that God can be trusted, that God can be faithful in his promises to us. And so we are looking at that in this series um, on Romans 9 through 11. Now, we're, we're going to continue that in a moment by looking at verses 14 through 29. But before we get to those verses, I want to just begin by making an observation about our lives. And that observation is this. Our dominion is very small. Our dominion is very small. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that anyone who hears this message will know that our dominion is very small. Think about if this message is recorded and sent to the President of the United States, one of the most powerful people on the earth. It would still be true that his dominion is very small. He operates within a constitution in one country. He has no rights on the the other side of the world in a different country. Certainly, he has no rights on the moon or Mars or to the far reaches of the universe. When you think of the, the scope of all things, the dominion of even someone as powerful as the president of the United States is very small. Now, if that's true for one of the most powerful people on the earth, it is certainly true of you and me. Think about this. How small is your dominion? Can you pick the paint color of your living room. Some of you can. Some of you can't because there's someone in your home that holds a trump card on that. Um, Your dominion is very small. But even if you hold the right to pick the paint color of your living room, here's the thing. Let Let me just remind you. You cannot paint even the color of the closet in your neighbor's house. It would be totally inappropriate. Why? Because your dominion has very defined borders and it's very small, even smaller than we might have first imagined. We are people who have a dominion that is very small. And let me go one step further. Even for those of us who have a small dominion, we reduce the size of our influence even more because we realize our own limitations. A number of years ago, uh, we found out that my wife would need a kidney transplant. And when we, we needed to have that kidney transplant, I did not just tell her, hey, you know what, Kimberly, I've got this. I'm going to go on Wikipedia, and I'm going to read about it, and then we're going to take care of it right here in our living room. It's no place better to be healed than at home, and we're going to get it done. I didn't do that. Why? Because I realized my limitations, my skills. And so I gave up some of my dominion to doctors who knew way more about this so that they could do what is best. Now, for those of us who are very small and those of us whose dominion is very small, even smaller than we might have first realized, isn't it interesting how we have critique and criticism for how an all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, and holy God is ruling the universe? 
We can't even pick the color of our neighbor's closet. And yet somehow we want to sit in judgment over the God of the universe about what he does. This is what happens, right? There's a lot of armchair quarterbacks for football teams. There's a lot of armchair gods who want to sit and criticize the God of the universe for how he does. Now, we need to remember as we do that, that we are small and that God is large and that there are things that God is going to do which go beyond our ability to easily understand it. And yet, because he's a good God, he can be trusted anyway. And last week when we began this series, we began talking about something that is very challenging to our minds and to our hearts. We began talking about the subject of predestination and election, about how God chose Jacob and not Esau, how God chose Steve and not Fred, about how God has initiated salvation for some and not others. It is his work, it is his decision, it is not ours. Now, when we began that by looking at these verses, no doubt you had some questions. And here's the reality, it's okay for you to have those questions. As a matter of fact, the God of the universe anticipates those questions. That's why right after that truth is is laid out for us in the first 13 verses of chapter 9, The sovereign God has Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, ask the two most common questions and provide some perspective on them so that we can understand what God is doing in election. But as we ask those questions, we should not find ourselves wanting to sit in dominion over a sovereign God. But instead, we should ask those questions with a humble heart, knowing that God knows best and that his ways are better than ours. So today, what we're going to do as we continue this series is we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 in part two of our series. And and we're going to see in this two of the most common questions that we have regarding election and predestination, and then we're going to see some perspective from God in response to our questions. So I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and unpack them in a couple of movements. The Apostle Paul writes and he says this, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, 
only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, in these verses today, we're going to see a couple of things, a couple of questions that we have regarding this idea of election and predestination, asked here by Paul, but probably questions that you had in your mind or heart last week when we went through these verses or throughout this week as you've looked at the Scripture. The first question that we see is found in verses 14 to 18, and that question is this, is God just? Is God just? Now, here's the logic of this. If God has saved Jacob and not Esau, is God just for judging Esau? Is God just? I mean, after all, that that seems strange to us. That salvation is on the basis of God's choice and, and God chose Jacob and not Esau and yet God still judges Esau. Does that mean that God is somehow unjust? That question is, is asked in, in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, that's a question that's here, but let me ask you, did you have that question last week? Have you had that question in the past when this topic has come up? Chances are good if we've thought long and hard about the verses that we read about how salvation is God's work and not ours, and it's his work and his step and his election that leads to our salvation, we've we've had this question. Well, here it is. It's asked right here in the Bible for us. Now, when Paul goes to answer that question, it's really interesting how he answers it. At first, it might seem as though he's changing the subject, but in fact, he's not. See, what what Paul is is doing in verses 15 and following is he's answering the question about is God just by lifting up another of God's character qualities. See, the reality is that God is just, and because God is just, what should we expect from a just God concerning sin? What we should expect from a just God concerning sin is justice, is judgment, not mercy. See, if God was only just, then no one would ever be saved because we saw in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 that the wrath of God is displayed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. In Romans 3.23, has famously told us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, what we should expect from a just God is judgment. In a sense, what Paul is saying is we shouldn't be surprised that God would judge Esau Because God's justice comes against sin. If we're asking, is God just, we're really asking the wrong question. We should not be surprised at God's justice. Instead, we should be surprised at God's mercy. How is it that sinful people get saved? We shouldn't be surprised how sinful people get judged. See, sometimes we get it backwards. We think that everybody is basically good. We think that God is obligated to save everybody. But the reality is that a holy and a just God reveals his wrath against sin, and that puts everyone outside of the family of God. That puts everyone under God's judgment if God does not intervene. Is God just? Yes. But thankfully, God is not just just. There's more to God's character. And that's what Paul points to in verse 15. Not only is he just, but he's also merciful. Look at what it says in verse 15. He he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, this quotation here in verse 15, where does it come from? It comes from the book of Exodus in chapter 33. In the context of Exodus 33 is very helpful for us because in Exodus 33, what we see is that Moses has a meeting with God. He has gone up on the mountain in chapter 32, and he is meeting with God. God has led them out of Egypt, the Israelites, and he has led them through the Red Sea. And then as they gathered as the people of God in the wilderness, God called Moses to a meeting up on the mountain. And when God was in that meeting with Moses on the mountain, he gave him Ten Commandments. Now, while Moses is with God on the mountain in the meeting, the people of God rebel. They begin to to question, they're like, where is Moses? Where has he gone? He has abandoned us. Now, of course, the obvious answer is, look at the storm on the mountain. He's up there. He's meeting with God. But they forgot all of that. They said, Moses has led us into the wilderness and he's abandoned us. And with his abandonment comes the abandonment of our God. Where is God? Where is Moses? They began to rebel. And so they come to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said, hey, make for us another God because the God who led us through the Red Sea and the God who passed over and saved our firstborn in Egypt, that God apparently has left and we need a new one. And so Aaron gathered together all the gold in the, in the camp and he turned it into a golden calf and the people of God gathered around this golden calf and they began singing thankfulness that their God had shown back up. Now, how do you think the true God, the real God, the God on the mountain with Moses reacted to the people of God making a cow and calling that their God. Well, he reacted with anger. He reacted out of his justice. And so Moses comes back down and and God, though his initial response is one of justice, God eventually shows mercy. And so what happens is the next day or or when Moses gets back from the mountain that 3,000 members of Israel die, though the rest of them would survive. Well, what do we call those survivors? We call those survivors a demonstration of God's mercy. And what do we call those who died? They were a demonstration of God's justice. Now, what separated those two? Merely the decision of God. God says to Moses, those who live, live because I chose for them to live. Those who die, die because I chose for them to die. But they both reveal my character, the justice and the mercy of God. See, this is the the, the picture that we see here. Is God just? Yes. But he's not just just. He's also merciful. And the ones who are receiving that mercy receive that mercy not because of their own doing, but because of God's gracious choice. That's what verse 16 lets us know. That's what God told Moses in Exodus 33. It continues in verse 17, and he gives the the counterexample. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, what is going on here when he mentions Pharaoh? When you tell the story of Moses, you can't hardly tell the story of Moses without also telling the story of Pharaoh. 
Because this chief event in the early part of Moses' ministry in leading Israel out of Egypt took place in this theater where the other main character was Pharaoh. Remember, Moses and Pharaoh would have grown up in the same home. Moses adopted into that royal family in Egypt. They would have spent time together. They came out of the same place. And yet from the same places where they came, God chose to have Moses be a recipient of his mercy, and he chose to withhold that mercy from Pharaoh. It was simply God's choice. Did he do it because Moses was better? No. What did Moses do? Moses had committed murder. It was merely a decision from God to extend mercy to Moses, but to withhold that mercy from Pharaoh. And why did God withhold that mercy from Pharaoh? Well, it it tells us there in those verses, it, it tells us that one of the reasons why the mercy was withheld was so that the justice of God might be revealed on the earth. See, Pharaoh had a a very specific role in in God's plan of revealing his glory, and that role was to demonstrate his rebellion of God and God's judgment upon Pharaoh and upon the nation of Egypt. That was the role that he played. You know, sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that God only receives glory, that God only is honored when his mercy is shown, that the only thing that God is doing in the world is saving people. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God receives glory and honor when his character is revealed in the earth, and that can happen through the revelation of his justice upon those who are receiving his judgment. And it also can happen when he withholds that judgment and shows mercy on others. Pharaoh and Moses both played a critical role in what was happening. They both were objects where God could reveal his character to the world. Is God just? Yes, but he's not just just. He's merciful as well. Verse 18 concludes that idea, that section. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, that's a, that's a hard phrase, this hardening. And it's a phrase that is used some 15 times of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. About half of the times this hardening that is mentioned of Pharaoh is used of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and about half of the times it's used is of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Here's what I think the the big idea is of, of this. When you pour concrete, if you step back and don't intervene, that concrete will eventually harden. It becomes set in its ways. And in the same way, our lives are like concrete that are, that are sinful, that are separated from God. And if God does not intervene in our own lives, it will harden around our sin and will make us merely a recipient of God's judgment forever. But if God intervenes, as he did with Moses and as he has with many in this room, then something new altogether happens and we have a new opportunity with God. Is God just? Yes, but he's not just just. Thankfully, praise God, he's merciful too. First question, is God just? Second question, though, is found in verses 19 through 29. And that question is this, is God fair? Is God fair? Now, we we see this right here at the beginning of verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
It's this, this idea of the fairness of God. It's, it's as if we, we would say, okay, I get it. God can be just and can show judgment upon the world, but that sure seems unfair to me. Because why is it that some are saved and, and others are not? That just seems unfair. Even if we're one of the ones who have been saved, we're like, why is it that, that I'm on the inside and somebody else is on the outside? Why can't it be a race and it's based on our performance? That seems fair. We have questions about the fairness of God when we reflect on this issue of salvation. Have you ever had that question? Well, that question is asked here by the Apostle Paul, and God provides some perspective. Now, the the answer that is given here is a really interesting answer, and that answer basically reminds us that our dominion is very small. It's an answer that is is based upon um, a God who is much bigger than us. And the answer that is given is really what is found in in verse 20. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, God can do what he wants. And because God is is all good and because God is is all powerful and he's all knowing, then we can trust that what he's doing is good even if we don't understand it. But we need to be careful if we begin questioning the fairness of God because that is placing us above him. It is placing us in judgment upon God, and he says we should never do that. God's plans are God's plans, and we need to trust that they're good. Verse 21 continues this argument. He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? the idea going back to Pharaoh and Moses. It's totally within God's prerogative to create some people as a canvas for his justice and others as a canvas for his mercy. That's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to understand, but it's absolutely consistent with the full character of God. He goes on in in verse 22. He He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? There's a lot in verse 22. It begins by talking about God desiring to show his wrath. The desire that God has to show his wrath is a desire to reveal to the universe his justice, to judge sin. We want this when we have been wronged. God, that you would bring justice upon the earth because this travesty has occurred. That's really the idea here. God is desiring to show his wrath, to show his justice upon the earth, to make known his power, to sit in dominion over all of those things, to sit in judgment upon the earth. God desires to show those things. It says after that that God has endured with patience vessels of wrath. What's the idea there? The idea is that why, why is it that if God has chosen some for salvation and some for destruction, why not destroy them? Why not judge them at the get-go? Why not wipe them out as young children or as adolescents or certainly in their 20s? Why allow them to live an entire life? Well, the, the reason that is given here is because God has endured with great patience those who are living upon this earth. Now, why would God choose to do that? I think one of the reasons why God chooses to endure with patience those who are not a part of the elect 
is because it reveals some great truths for us about the nature of the human heart. So sometimes we think if somebody just hears the right presentation, if somebody just sees the right miracle, if somebody is just a part of the right church or sees the right worship service, that suddenly that will be the thing that will change their heart, that will change their life, that will unite them to God forever. But God has endured with patience vessels of wrath to let us know that through all of the experiences that people live through, if God is not calling, they will continually reject. This is actually true even in the book of Revelation as we see God judging the earth in these movements of time. What happens is that people don't respond to those movements of God's judgment by repenting, even when God shows up in miraculous ways. Why? Some do, others don't. Those whom God calls respond in faith, while others do not. See, there's a a revelation in the patience that God has It shows that he is revealing to them an opportunity to respond, though in their sin they do not. He says here in the last parts of this, the vessels of of, of wrath that he has endured with much patience, that they are prepared for destruction. Now, this is another challenging phrase and a a phrase that, that might make us think that God has merely just prepared them for destruction, that that was his main idea. But the reality of this this word prepare, it's, it's a middle reflexive verb tense in the original language. What does that mean? It means it's something that they do to themselves. In other words, vessels of wrath have prepared themselves for destruction. It is the sinfulness of mankind that we are judged on, not on God's decisions. He goes on in verse 23, though, and lets us know that there's another opportunity. Some are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, but he says in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. This is the idea that in every season, in every part of the history of the earth, God has some people that he has called to himself that he has initiated with, that he has made known to them the truth of the gospel, that he has made it possible within their hearts for them to trust that and to believe it in faith. And if you are here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, know that God has prepared for you glory. And I think it's such a powerful thing because when we talk about being prepared for destruction, that is a reflexive middle form. That is, we prepare ourselves for destruction. But when it talks here of being prepared for glory, who does the work? It is God who has prepared us for glory. It is God who has prepared us for glory. If we know Christ as our Savior from sin and judgment, it is because God has graciously initiated with us, not on the basis of his justice, but on the basis of his mercy. Verse 24, he he gets into uh, another demonstration of the fairness of God, showing that God has people from all different ethnic backgrounds that he is including in his plans, and it's been that from the very beginning. He says in verse 24, even us whom he called, not from the Jews, but only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he illustrates that with quotations from prophecies that were written hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah and Hosea. And in those prophecies, what we see is that it was always God's intention to include members from outside the nation of Israel in the family of God. Is God fair? Well, we may struggle at times because our understanding of fairness is small, but we need not place ourselves over God. 
We need to trust that He is the one who is sovereign. We need to understand that He is the one who has reached out to us and not us to Him. And He is the one who can save us. Therefore, our salvation can be secure. Now, when we walk through these verses, the first 29 verses of Romans chapter 9, I want us to, to end our time today with some applications from those verses because it's possible for us to read these verses and have it just be some kind of brain candy. And for some of us, it's brain candy that gives us brain indigestion because it's so hard for us to, to, to process. But for others, we just want to delve in these ways, we want to have charts and graphs and understand how these pieces fit together. But I think it's important for us as we go through this to realize that God's Word is profitable for us and that God wants us to respond and be a doer of the Word and not merely a hearer of it. So what are some applications from this section of God's Word? Well, the first application I want to point out is this. Election should not stop evangelism, but inspire it. Election should not stop evangelism, but inspire it. Now, this may be counterintuitive for you, because when you hear that, you think, wouldn't, if God has chosen some and not others, shouldn't we just stay home and not even bother sharing the gospel? Because those who are going to be saved are going to be saved. But the reality is God has graciously chosen to invite us to be included in the work that he's already doing. Charles Spurgeon says this about this this idea. I, I love this quote. He says, if God had painted a stripe down the back of the elect, I'd spend my days walking up and down the streets of London, lifting up shirt tails. But because he said, whosoever wills may come, I preach the gospel to everyone, and I rely on him to lead those to faith who are his. Friends, election inspires evangelism because it reminds us that God is already at work calling men and women to himself. People on their own will not choose to follow Christ, but God is at work intervening in real time in the lives of people around us, leading them to repentance. There are many in this room who have come to faith in Christ at a later age. Why did it happen that way? How did it happen that way? Because God was patient as he walked you through your life until the moment came when when God reached out to you in grace and mercy and in real time you trusted in him. And there's a good chance that God used somebody else around you to help lead you to Christ. And God wants to do the same through you in the lives of your friends. The fact that God is already at work ought to inspire evangelism within us, not cause us to stop it. First thing. Second thing, salvation is no accident. Salvation is no accident. Sometimes we think that we are saved based on us, things that we've figured out, our, our, our good works that we've done or something like that. But the reality is what this doctrine of election lets us know is that salvation is not an accident. It's an intentional decision by a sovereign God to include you with him forever. John Stott says this about this. He says, if anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. What a powerful thought that God is the one who receives glory. If you ever hear a testimony that sounds like the glory is us, it's not a good testimony because it is God who leads us to salvation. It is God who receives glory for our connection to him. Salvation is not an accident. And the last thing I want us to see by way of application is this. The cross is where the justice and the mercy of God intersect. 
in an unfair act that saved a wretch like me. See, we've spent time in this message talking about the justice of God and the fairness of God. But here is is what's powerful when we think about what happened on the cross. It was at the cross that God's justice was demonstrated because Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. See, it was the justice of God that was on display at the cross because God judged sin at the cross. It was God's justice on display there. But not only God's justice, but also his mercy. God's mercy intersects with God's judgment at the cross because that death that Christ died made it possible for all of us in this room to have a connection with God that goes on forever, not on the basis of us, but on the basis of him because he is merciful. He extends to us that opportunity. And and not only did those two come together there, but it came together in an act that is certainly an unfair exchange because how many sins did Jesus commit? Zero. And yet he went to that cross. And so a sinless, perfect man died in our place. We were guilty. We walk. He dies. That's an unfair exchange. How dare we question the fairness of God knowing that this unfair act is how we merit our salvation? The justice of God meets the mercy of God in an unfair act that saves sinners like you and me. And friends, if you are here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, but as we have talked through this and gone through this, you feel a stirring in your heart and soul. These verses are making sense to you in a new way. Know that that is not an accident, that that is a product of God's work in your heart and in your life and in your mind. And it is God, not me, who is inviting you into a relationship with him forever because left to our own devices, we would not turn back and follow Christ. So if we are are feeling our heart turning to repent and to follow Christ, know that that is not our work, that is God's. And if we would respond to that choice of God in faith, then you, like so many of us in this room, could know the blessed truth that our salvation is secure because it is God's work and not ours. And with that reminder, let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be together today and to look at your word. And Father, I want to pray right now for all of us who have trusted in Christ. Father, I'll thank you that it it is not an accident. Father, so many people that I know, so many people in this room and around the the world who have come into a relationship with you, Christ, I thank you that that is not something that they have stumbled upon, but you have planned for it and you have provided it. But Father, I also pray today because I know that you're at work around us. And even in this room, there are those who do not know you. Uh, Up to this point, they have persisted in sin and they're trusting in themselves for their eternity. But Father, today in this moment, as as your word is proclaimed, that in their hearts, they, they may be turning. Father, you may be calling them, and though you have have prepared them from the foundation of the earth for this moment, this might be the time in in real history where they place their faith and trust in you. And Father, if, if that's the case, I pray that you would just allow them the faith to embrace Christ in this moment where they sit, praying from their heart, to embrace Christ as their rescuer from sin and judgment. Father, thank you for initiating on their behalf and on mine. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.